Let's pray. Father, um, it is a tremendous responsibility, but also a great joy to proclaim uh, your word, especially as it tells us about uh, your zeal in blessing your people to the point that you would send your own Son, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give him to humanity in order that he might go to the cross and suffer under your hot and holy justice in order that we might be your children. Lord, it is beyond me to be able to preach your word and do it faithfully. So I ask for your help. I ask that you would um, bless me in the words of my mouth. I pray that you would also bless um, my hearers and open the eyes and ears of their heart to receive your word. And in so doing, grow uh, in their faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask in his name. Amen. After I drop my son... um, at practice uh, for cross country, he goes to practice at 7 a.m., at, typically at Stearns uh, Park, which is uh, right off of Bloomingdale and Lithia Pinecrest. Uh, I'll go from there over to the YMCA. Sometimes I'll do my devotions. Other times I'll uh, uh, work out. And typically, then I will get a shower and dress for the day while I'm there at the Y. Uh, the conversations in the locker room are always very interesting. Uh, most of the men uh, are my age or older, and so the conversation is never crude or degrading. Uh, rather, the talk of, is about life in general. And I will say this. Uh, it's been my observation that the less clothes that the men have on, the more profound are the topics that they talk about. And um, I have some theories on that, but that would not be appropriate for me to bring up. Um, So this week, while I was dressing, a couple of men were having a conversation. It was a very profound conversation, if you get what I'm talking about. Uh, They were talking about the importance of people having hope in the future. One of the men uh, owned an entertainment establishment. I'm not going to say what kind of establishment it was in case you happen to know the owner. Kind of like roller skating, ice skating, bowling, stuff like that. Anyway, he owned uh, an entertainment establishment. And I heard him say, I'd rather have a poor migrant worker with $50 in his pocket to um, come into my business rather than a rich man with a hundred dollars. Because the poor man lives for the moment. He spends the entire fifty dollars that he has because he doesn't know if he's going to have any money tomorrow. The rich man has hope for tomorrow, so he saves his money for a more significant purchase uh, later on. Our culture is living through a period where we don't have a lot of hope for the future, both individually and collectively. Uh, Just this week, a sheriff's deputy shot to death his wife, his grandchild, and then went over uh, to his daughter's house and shot her as well. And then he killed himself in front of um, 
his fellow sheriff's deputies. And he told them before he killed himself that he had big personal and financial problems. I imagine he had hit a rough spot and he had no hope of making it through. Suicide rates in our nation are climbing over the past 10 years in our country. Quite apart from the issues of suicides, I grew up, and those of you of my age or older, we grew up hearing about the American dream where every citizen should have equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity if they worked hard and took initiative. Well, the, the, that hope of the American dream has fallen uh, away from our vocabulary in recent years. I bring this up because Judah was going through a similar period in their history when Isaiah was writing his prophecy. Assyria was on the rise. Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, as opposed to Syria, S-Y-R-I-A, which um, I'll bring up in a few moments. So Assyria was on the rise. They were invading different nations. They were building their empire so that the nations of Syria and the nation of Israel, what they wanted to do is they wanted to form an alliance with Judah, these three smaller nations, Syria, Israel, and Judah, so that they might uh, be able to stand up against Assyria. And the king of Judah refused to do so at the urging of Isaiah the prophet. And so the, kings of, the king of Syria and the king of Israel threatened then to invade Judah. Isaiah recorded their threats in the, the passage that I wrote in the, the Christmas uh, card. In chapter 7, verse 6, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Once word of this threat reached Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, his courage melted. Uh, God knew he was thinking of joining Syria and Israel to, uh, to stand up against the, the greater nation of Assyria. So what God did was he sent Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz to encourage him to reject the alliance And God even offered him a sign that God would protect Judah. Ahaz, however, had already determined to join the alliance. So he rejected the offer of the sign that God gave to him. And as you listen to him rejecting the offer, hear how sanctimonious. He puts it in godly terms. I am disregarding God's word, but I am looking very holy and devout as I do so. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, God saying to Ahaz, You set the terms. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
which of course means God with us. The meaning of the sign of Emmanuel was that Syria and Israel would be decimated and Assyria would invade Judah, bringing great destruction. The next chapter, chapter 8, is about the invasion of Judah by Assyria. Now, this didn't happen for another 40 years off, 35, 40 years. But it's so certain. The prophecy that Isaiah is giving to Ahaz is so certain. He is speaking of it as if, as if it had already happened. He's speaking of it in the past tense, even though it's still 40 years in the future. Um, and he does this to illustrate how certain God's prophet, uh, promises are. So throughout chapter 8, Isaiah reminds the faithful that God would be with them through the Assyrian invasion. As I mentioned, we know that the word Emmanuel means God with us. And that the son bearing the name Emmanuel was given in chapter 7, verse 14. But that's not the only place in our context where God uses the word Emmanuel. So look in chapter 8, verses uh, 8 and verse 9. He says, And it will sweep onto Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. He's talking about Assyria's uh, invasion is going to sweep over the whole land. But he reminds the faithful, Emmanuel. God will be with us, even as Assyria is invading us. And then verse 9, Be broken, um, you peoples, and be shattered. Uh, Give ear to all, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Uh, take, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for, literally, Emmanuel. God is with us. The faithful were to put their trust in God during the Assyrian invasion. In fact, in verse 13 in chapter 8, uh, it reads, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. And so the, Is- the faithful Israelites, the believing Israelites, were to put their hope and their trust in the Lord. They were to fear Him rather than fearing Assyria with this mighty army. They were not to act like uh, the wicked who complained about God. And we read about them in verse 21. In verse 21, uh, talking about the wicked um, in Judah. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry because... Assyria has invaded, the economy has collapsed. They will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And I think the reason why they're turning their faces upward is to complain to God to His face. Talk about contempt. Now make no mistake, the suffering was real. When the Assyrians invaded The economy of Judah collapsed. The women were raped. The babies were killed by smashing their heads against stones. And if the men were not killed, 
they were carried away into captivity. Some, some very few of you, uh, might have memories of the Great Depression that followed that was followed by World War II. If you can remember those times, you have just an inkling of how bad things were when Assyria invaded Judah. God ultimately spared Judah from being overtaken by Assyria, but the invasion was difficult. The suffering was real. Verse 22 describes it like this in in chapter 8. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Doubtless several of you feel as if your life has been invaded by an enemy that is as ruthless as Assyria. We have our indwelling sin that is continually resides within us, an enemy that lives inside our soul, that fights against the Spirit, that fights against our new nature in Christ, so that we don't do what we want to do. The very thing we hate, we end up doing, Paul says. We also have the great cares of the world on the outside, not to mention the cunning schemes of Satan. Additionally, We have financial strains. We have physical pains. Uh, We have strained relationships, ongoing fears and worries, exhausting cares and griefs that we carry around wherever we go. You've probably carried many things here into the worship service with you this morning. Maybe the accumulation of sufferings has driven you to bitterness of soul. You may feel as if you were being driven as a captive into the land of despair. And your heart um, is wasting away in hopelessness. Maybe like that sheriff's deputy this week. God calls you to trust in Him. Fix your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the anchor for your soul as you navigate the raging storms of life. As a pastor, I wish that I could fix the problems in people's life. But I am unable. I can counsel. I can read you God's uh, gospel promises. I can sympathize with you. I can pray for you. But I cannot have faith for you. You must entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must hang on to Him. He alone is your Savior. And so I want to encourage you this morning, just as the Israelites, the faithful Israelites, who endured the Assyrian invasion, uh, were encouraged not to lose heart. I want to encourage you wherever you are and whatever's happening in your life, however prolonged, the suffering or the pain may be, even if there is no end in sight. Don't lose heart. Don't give up your hope in the Lord, no matter how bad life hurts. Look at Isaiah uh, chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, Isaiah says, as he's speaking for how the people are to Uh, Trust the Lord during the time 
of 40 years in the future when the Assyrians invade the land. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. I want to tell you, if you're going through an especially difficult time, you feel as if your feet are about to slip. Uh, Your faith is about to slip. Because your suffering is more than you can endure. I want to give you an assignment. Um, Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. The first 19 or 20 verses, uh, Jeremiah... Did I say Leviticus? I didn't mean to say Leviticus. Lamentations. Jeremiah didn't write Leviticus. Okay, Lamentations, uh, which is the book of laments, the book of sadness. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 19 or 20, is some of the most sad passages, verses in all of Scripture, as Jeremiah um, recounts how... Terribly, his life is going at the moment. But verses 20 through uh, 26, he begins remembering the faithfulness of God. And it gives you a whole different perspective. My God is faithful even when I am struggling. Christ knows we suffer. Nothing is hidden from Him. While you're going through your sufferings, Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, God with you. In chapter 9, he gave the suffering uh, Israelites great hope. While they were dwelling in the thickest, deepest darkness, he said, Christ is going to be your great light. The light was such that the increasing joy that they would have by dwelling in the light would drive out the gloom and the trouble. So look at verses nine, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, the former time is the, the time of the Assyrian invasion that was just described in the verses above. In the former time, he brought into contempt, con- contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Zebulun and Naphtali were on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. When Assyria invaded, these two tribes would have borne the brunt of, of Assyria's brutality because they were the first in line in the invasion route as Assyria came down from the, uh, the northeast in, uh, spreading out into uh, Israel and then into Judah. Being first in line for suffering in God's grace meant that they would also be first in line for God's blessing. So when Jesus came into our world, Where did he first go when he began his public ministry? 
He went to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He went to the areas around the Sea of Galilee. Where did he choose his first uh, or his 12 disciples from? From that area. Uh, Where did he perform most of his miracles and the preaching that was done uh, by him? Around on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So one commentator aptly said, that first land to be invaded by the enemy was made the headquarters of the army of salvation. This very Zebulun and Naphtali, which had been so downtrodden and despised, was made the scene of the mighty works of the Son of God. Or as Matthew, uh, Matthew in his gospel put it like this in chapter 4, Now when he heard that John, when he being Jesus, had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, which is are, are in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Far from forgetting those who are suffering most. And that's what we're tempted to think. God's forgotten about me, therefore I'm suffering. Far from that. God makes those who are suffering His priority. If you are suffering, you receive the first of His attention. That is part of the reason that the College Hill uh, Church plant is so necessary. Uh, You go online and you type in what is the most dangerous neighborhood in Tampa. At least one website website that I found put College Hill at the top of the list for the most dangerous neighborhood. God has instructed us that the Lord shines His light most brightly in the darkest parts of our society. You might be saying to yourself, well, little good it did for the inhabitants of Zebulun and Naphtali when the invasion was actually happening. You know, Jesus was not born for another 700 years. They had to live in the darkness of suffering only to see a light in their darkness. And that light was seven centuries away. That light, however was the certainty of God's love and His faithfulness. That light was the promise of God's salvation. The future hope of that light enabled them to endure the pain, the sorrow, the grief, and the suffering that was brought upon them. While we live here on earth, God has not promised us freedom from suffering. Just the opposite. But the light of Christ has dawned in our soul because we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Romans chapter 5, verse 2, uh, chapter 2 through 5, sorry, Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, tells us, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Not only that, 
the fact that Christ has come into our world means that he is coming back. Psalm uh, chapter 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus Christ will right every wrong. Jesus Christ will establish righteousness where there was only injustice. The Assyrians may have carried out unspeakable horrors, but they would be punished. Isaiah chapter 10, the very next chapter, outlines a serious punishment in detail. In our passage, in verses 4 and 5, we see the confirmation, the promise of that punishment, that justice that God would bring upon Assyria. So he says in verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Just as God routed Midian in Gideon's day, God is promising that he would rout the Assyrians. God's justice may not immediately uh, be seen, but his justice is certain. If we cannot physically see God's work, uh, God's hand at work, uh, in the time frame that we like to see it, how do we know that we can trust him? What if God's going to wait 700 years before he brings us justice? What if God's planning to wait 700 years before he brings us deliverance? Isaiah hearkens back to the promise given in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And he says, God is going to give to us a child. And this is no ordinary child. We know that he will be a ruler because the government will be upon his shoulders. So verses 6 and 7. For confirmation that God's promises of deliverance, God's promises of light will come. This promise is confirmed in the giving to us a son. So he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We know that, that he is going to be a ruler. His rule will not be dedicated to serving the interest of the elites at the expense of the poor. He will rule with his eyes blindfolded so that he will not play favorites. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5, if you want to turn over a couple of chapters, describes his rule. Says in chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he's going to rule in the fear of the Lord. 
He's going to rule by the power and strength of the Spirit. And he continues, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness and justice will be the rule in his kingdom. And this child will be able to carry out his will. He will be able to do all that he has determined in his government because he is divine. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word wonderful is better translated as supernatural. And this, counsel, this idea of counselor has a sense of being a battle planner. It doesn't mean that Christ is a psychologist, that Christ wants you to lay on the psychologist's um, uh, couch and, and spill all your problems in a psychological manner. What he's saying as our wonderful counselor is he is going to rule us, he is going to defend us, he is going to subdue all of his and our enemies. He will indeed break the power of oppression that we read about in uh, verse 4 and verse 5. Christ is the supernatural general of the universe, we could say. Jesus is not only the King of kings. He's not only the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the general of all generals. Alexander the Great. Napoleon. George Washington. George Patton, all of them together could not come close to defeating our Lord Jesus Christ, the supernatural counselor, the supernatural battle planner. Now, if you like calling him wonderful instead of supernatural, I won't fault you. To me, Christ is wonderful. He drew me to himself even when I was dead in my sins. He saved me from my sins even when I was a self-centered child of Satan. He gave His life to the cross that I might become a child of God with life eternal. Truly, our Lord Jesus Christ is wonderful. Is He wonderful to you? Is He wonderful for you? Is he more than a fire insurance policy to keep you out of hell? Do you love him because he is your dear Savior? Is he in your heart wonderful? Jesus is also here in verse 6 called the mighty God. Now when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door on Saturday morning and um, they want you to come to the door and talk about Uh, They want to try and convince you that Jesus is not God. You can take them to this verse and say, see, Jesus is the mighty God. And they'll say, oh, no, no, no. It doesn't say that he's the almighty God, that he is just a mighty God. Therefore, he is not divine. Well, you can take them to the very next chapter. Chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. And you can read to them. In that day, the remnant of Israel, 
and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. It's striking to me how the Jehovah's Witnesses will go to such lengths to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, the world, even though we are in the midst of singing the the Christmas hymns, uh, the world is no fan of Jesus either. At this time of the year, the world loves singing about Jesus in the manger, as long as they can think of him as perpetually a baby in that manger. But Jesus is a baby no longer. He is the mighty God. He is the king of the universe. Is Christ for you the mighty God? You know, it is folly for professing followers to give Christ lip service without entrusting their life, without entrusting their happiness, without entrusting their purposes to Him. A lot of people say, Lord, Lord, but do not really entrust themselves to Him. And He sees right through their hypocrisy. Is He for you, not only in your profession, but in your life? The mighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. What does it mean that Christ is called the everlasting Father? What does this do to our understanding of the Trinity? Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. They are not interchangeable. When Isaiah calls Jesus the everlasting Father, he is not indicating any relationship within the deity, within the Godhead, but rather he's, he's talking to us about our, our relation with Jesus. Isaiah wants, to, wants us to understand that this child who was born, this son who is given, is everlasting. In other words, before he was born into our world, He was from everlasting to everlasting, without beginning, without end. In the ancient Near East, it was common to call someone father for which he was remarkable. If someone was exceptionally smart, they would say, you're the father of wisdom. If someone was exceptionally exceptionally foolish, they might call him the father of folly. Jesus here is being called the Father of Eternity. Eternity is not above Jesus. Eternity did not bring forth Jesus. Rather, Jesus is the parent, the Father of Eternity. Jesus created time because Jesus is timeless. He is indeed the King of the Ages. We all live, we grow older, and one day all of us will die if the Lord Jesus does not come back first. Whenever that day should come, we will not cross over uh, from death to life alone because Christ, the Eternal One, will be with us. He will be with us from eternity. He is the Father of eternity. Finally, in verse 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Christ is establishing His kingdom, uh, His kingdom of peace, one soul at a time. 
the church which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, The church is his agent of peace in the world. That's why love must be our leading character trait. We must love each other in the body of Christ. We must love our neighbors. We must even love our enemies. We are Christ warriors waging His peace through love. That is our weapon. The Word of God which teaches about God's grace and our love one for another, for our neighbors, even for our enemies. And then verse 7 to conclude uh, tells us what His kingdom of peace will look like. So look with me at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His rule and his kingdom is ever increasing. His rule and his peace is spreading around the world. As Christianity wanes in the Middle East... As Christianity dies out in Europe, the Lord Jesus came to America. As America is finding less and less important to keep our eyes and our focus, our faith fixed upon Jesus, He moves on to South America. He moves on to Africa and to the Far East. Where we are lagging, the gospel is thriving in those other corners of the world. Jesus Christ is, un, is rolling back unrighteousness and injustice as He establishes His gospel. And He's going to keep riding or marching on until He rides back on that white horse at the end of history. And His zeal, as it says here at the end of verse 7, His zeal will lead Him to accomplish all that He has purposed. If you are dwelling in the darkness of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, this morning, if you feel like you, your life is at the height of the Assyrian invasion, I want to encourage you, look to the Lord Jesus. Recommit your faith to Him. Fear Him. Don't, feel, don't fear your circumstances. Jesus Christ is the only anchor for your soul. Trust in Him. Entrust yourself to Him. The child born is the mighty God who is able to save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I know that this has been a longer uh, sermon than normal. Lord, I know that there are saints who are feeling as if their feet are about to slip out from underneath them. Lord, We ask that you would keep our feet firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us all to entrust ourselves to him. Because he is able to save us. We ask this in his name. Amen.